The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The Identities and Transformation Research Team. That is one of five research teams based in the Trinity Long Room Hub. And the Trinity and the Changing City public lecture series is the flagship lecture series of uh, this research theme, Identities in Transformation. Over the past three years, we have organized 13 public events, this being the 13th, I hope that's a good omen, not a bad omen, uh, as part of this series, bringing together internationally acclaimed scholars in the arts, humanities, and social sciences from Trinity and further afield, together with key stakeholders and practitioners from across the city, um, so indeed, this dialogue between academic and the non-academic community is key, has been key um, to this lecture series, as is the interdisciplinary nature um, of the series. So, uh, so these, uh, and we focused over the years on really important topics, um, just to name a few, housing, um, uh, educational inequalities, health, sustainability, the environment, um, the language diversity in Dublin, social class issues, racism, uh, and tonight uh, we have uh, the topic of migration. Indeed, uh, the artistic representation of refugees and, uh, and direct provision. And uh, the person who will chair uh, tonight's proceedings is uh, Professor Steve uh, Wilmer. And uh, I'd like to say a few words about uh, uh, um, uh, the chair as well. So he is a professor emeritus in drama and former head of the School of Drama, Film and Music uh, here at Trinity. He's been visiting professor at Stanford and UC Berkeley and research fellow at the International Research Center for Interweaving Performance Cultures at the Free University of Berlin. And among his many publications are um, two books I'd like to, to uh, uh, highlight to you. One is Performing Statelessness in Europe, uh, published uh, recently, a couple of years ago, and Theatre Society and the Nation. Uh, and of course, I, I, I could go on, but at this point, I'd like to um, uh, hand over to Steve uh, to introduce our distinguished panel uh, for tonight. And uh, we all look forward to a fantastic uh, discussion uh, on, on the topic. Is he muted, Steve? Okay, sorry. Uh, so my name is Steve Wilmer, as Daniel said. Uh, I'm Professor Emeritus in Drama at Trinity College. Uh, I want to warmly welcome you all to this event and thank Daniel uh, in the Department of Sociology and Francesca O'Rafferty at the Long Room Hub for their help in setting it up. The idea of this panel on migration and its artistic representation is to discuss ways in which immigrants might receive a more supportive environment in Ireland. As you know, Ireland has the reputation of extending Cade Mille Falcha or a thousand welcomes to visitors. But the question is whether everyone is welcome and for how long and how far can one be hospitable? Recently, there have been news stories about centers for refugees and their families not being welcomed in various Irish communities, such as in Ruski, Uchtarard and Kajasavin. And of course, this raises the question why they're sent in the first place to such remote and isolated places with few resources and supports. In Europe, far-right groups in many countries have been stoking up antagonism against immigrants, and many borders have been closed to migration. Likewise, the EU has been financing Frontex 
to prevent migration into Europe and supporting detention centers in Libya to confine people who have been trying to cross the Mediterranean. It certainly has not helped the general attitude to migration that during the last four years, the US president banned immigration from certain Muslim countries and disparaged migrants from Latin America saying, quote, they are bringing drugs, they are bringing crime, they're rapists, etc." However, the good news is that President Biden seems to be taking a more benevolent approach to immigration, which may help the many thousands of undocumented Irish in America. Given that change in policy, we think it's especially appropriate now to ask how the conditions of immigrants here in Ireland might be improved. During this session, we want to look at what artistic approaches have been used to call attention to the position of immigrants and their children. Theater, film, photography, and visual arts have all helped to document the conditions of refugees. For example, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei filmed migrants all over the world for a celebrated documentary, documentary Human Flow. Likewise, the Young Vic and National Theatre in London co-produced a play that transferred to the West End called The Jungle, which recreated the conditions in the refugee camp at Calais. Also, the Maltese photographer Darren Zamet Lupi has beautifully recorded migrants making the perilous crossing of the Mediterranean. Here in Ireland, various artists have portrayed immigrants through different artistic media. Theater makers such as Donal O'Kelly and Charlie O'Neill have staged plays about individuals and groups of migrants. For example, O'Kelly's Asylum Asylum depicted the struggle of a Ugandan to gain asylum in Ireland only to be deported. And his play, The Cambria, told the story of Frederick Douglass's voyage to Ireland to escape slavery in 1845 and recounted how Douglass was warmly welcomed by Daniel O'Connell and celebrated throughout the country. Interestingly, an American actor from the popular Broadway musical Hamilton has recently arrived in Dublin to make a TV series about this same story. Likewise, Charlie O'Neill's play Hurl portrayed a board group of asylum seekers who form a hurling club team to while away the hours and, become, and they become so proficient at hurling that they reach the provincial club championships. Also, various theater companies such as Calypso Productions, Arambe Productions, the Irish Dance Theater, and the Polish Theater Ireland have all featured the challenges associated with immigration. During this panel session, in addition to discussing artistic work, we also plan to ask what might be done to empower refugees and improve their conditions here, such as abolishing direct provision and creating universities of sanctuary. We hope that audience members will want to pose questions. You can post questions or comments in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. We are especially fortunate to have four exceptional speakers on our panel today, Vukashin Nedeljegevich, uh, B.C. Adigun, uh, Bulalane Mfako, sorry, I'm pronounce, pronouncing it badly, uh, and uh, Roja uh, Faseli. The first two speakers will talk about their experiences of using artistic forms to represent the position of immigrants in Ireland 
And I expect the last two speakers will talk more about empowering refugees. Each of them will speak for about seven or eight minutes. And afterwards, there'll be some time for questions for the audience. So our first panelist is Vukashin Nedeljakovic, who is a visual artist based in Ireland with a master's degree in visual arts practice from Dunleary Institute of Arts, Design and Technology. After arriving from Serbia and applying for asylum, he lived in a direct provision center, which he photographed. He then set about documenting other centers, deliberately choosing not to include people in his photos. From this, he initiated a multidisciplinary project called Asylum Archive, an online platform open for dialogue and discussion for people who have experienced direct provision centers. He calls it, quote, an act of solidarity to bring a different perspective on the life of people who came to Ireland to seek protection, unquote. So Vukashin, you have the floor. Thank you very much, uh, uh, everyone. Uh, good evening, everyone. It's uh, really, I must say, uh, nice and lovely to be invited to uh, uh, this panel. Um, and I know I have only seven, eight minutes, so what I would like to say, uh, add and comment on this topic, uh, which is uh, migration and artist representation or response to migration will probably last uh, definitely more than uh, seven or eight minutes. So I'll uh, really uh, try to uh, do my best within this short time to really present something that I was working on uh, to raise a couple of issues and uh, more importantly to uh, uh, really have have uh, um, questions uh, if there is any on um, on on this uh, particular uh, this particular subject so um, So you can see this now at the moment. So I can uh, just uh, just uh, uh, just to say that uh, I arrived from former Yugoslavia uh, in Ireland in 2007, seeking international protection, and I was uh, uh, placed and living in uh, most of my time, which was three and a half years in direct provision in um, direct provision. Uh, the old convent direct provision center in Balihon is where I initiated uh, this uh, uh, platform, uh, which is called subsequently called Asylum Archive, as you can see here. Uh, it started in 2007 and it's uh, still uh, uh, going. Um, most of the people may, I wouldn't say most of the people, apologies, uh, some people may have heard of this work. Uh, uh, again, I would like to show you some of the work I have done recently and uh, uh, last year, really, or at the beginning of a uh, pandemic. And uh, it's really uh, more than a, a kind of, uh, that I wanted, but what is really prevailing in this work is the photographs uh, of uh, uh, the building. But what is really important in this work, uh, I believe, is uh, uh, that every single uh, building that I'm going to show you now um, has a story. Okay, the stories are 
devastating, the stories are harrowing, the stories are disturbing, the stories are our present stories. And this is one of the centers, only one of the centers uh, that opened at the very beginning of pandemic in Cahar-Savin, in uh, Kerry, in a very remote area um, that hosted people and uh, pandemic uh, broke down. And uh, it was, I was there at the very beginning of it and even before the residents came, but what really happened in this particular building in this um, former hotel is really, uh, it's inferno, really, if that's the right word I can use, is people getting contracted the virus uh, and the virus spread. So from one to 50, maybe more, not being allowed to leave this building by HSC, but also by the local residents or uh, community in Kahar Sabine. And, uh, this particular center was in the media, if you like, somewhat, uh, but we still don't know, even we in Massey, if I may, uh, work with people every day, really remotely. Uh, we knew there were several centers like R. Powell in uh, Newbridge and recently in uh, Killarney, uh, Atlas uh, DP Center that has as a building or as an entity uh, uh, many many people uh, that are living uh, in, in really uh, poor devastating conditions with uh, having been infected by the virus and as i said every single building uh, every single site has a story and i don't know really i'm um, kind of how much we have to continue to talk I've been talking for 14 years really. Uh, and then for how long we have to continue to talk for the society to realize that this is not only the continuation of the previous carceral institutions that we kind of know very well at this stage, like Madeline laundries and mother and baby homes, industrial schools, but it also has another layer uh, that these sites may not have had with all the harshness being imposed on people living there is that notion of deportability and I, or people being so much vulnerable to being deported, which means, as you know, removed from Ireland back to their countries. And, or not their countries or where they're from and uh, or been born. This particular center in uh, Monaghan, um, Emergency Accommodation Center, uh, which has been um, initiated by the government a couple of years ago or two years ago, I believe, uh, is another anomaly or the continuation of direct provision center. What really here is happening or was happening is this was still operating as a hotel where asylum seekers were living there. So every Friday when there is a wedding, right? Or I would say white wedding, people have been shipped on the bus from Carrickmacross all the way to Roslare, to hotel there. So they don't 
interfere, disturb the wedding that was going on. And then on Monday or Sunday night, four hours journey in the bus, men, women, children were brought back. So this is it. This is happening. We can go a bit further in terms of Ireland, you know, and the racial segregation. Uh, Upper Height in 2020, 2021, nowadays, Esplanade Direct uh, Emergency Accommodation Center. Same story, but we're going a bit further. So in this particular place, you have two entrances. One is for the tourists, and the second one is for people seeking international protection. And may I also say that people seeking international protection are advised or not allowed to congregate in the common areas or living in this building in RD above the bank uh, where you're not allowed to open a bank account as an asylum seeker. And I can go on and on and on. The, probably, I would say after working on this 14 years, uh, I would like to outline that these photographs that you are going to see now contributed by non-artists, by people surviving direct provision are the pivotal and, and the foundation of uh, uh, asylum archive at present. As we are not allowed pre-COVID to even go to any of direct provision centers, but these courageous, brave, strong people have decided to contribute their uh, experiences in the visual uh, art platform, let's say, or in term, uh, in form of photography to uh, asylum market. So then we can see here a total devastation, a total devastation that continues. And as I have mentioned, it's still so difficult. It's impossible to know what is happening at the moment within those walls of direct provision. And as Lucky Kambula and Formasi have said, let us be reminded that direct provision has been in lockdown for 21 years. These photographs are the testament of our time. And so many stories going around and around. This particular photograph contributed by a person uh, living in one of the centers who was on the front line working in one of the Irish hospitals. Uh, apart that he contracted the virus, he was also issued with a deportation order. And we all have may heard about that, that somehow we are okay to employ, let's say, cheap labor uh, from people who are lucky, if you like, to, to have a, a work permit and work for us, for Irish people on the front line, being so in such a devastating um, conditions. And this is one example, and this is a good example. This is not a horror example. This is not a, a, the most, most brutal example. And some examples would show there is the, 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 the space between bed is the spaces between beds in one room with three, four, five, six beds during the pandemic is less than half a meter, right? So how do you then 
live? How then you survive when we were all told two meters distance everywhere, right? So I must say that, that, that there's something wrong here. And, and I must pose this, that was this a deliberate decision by the state of Ireland to continue to exterminate people who have done no crime, but their only guilt was that they come to this land to seek protection. And if we dwell on Ireland, if we blame Ireland, which we should forever and ever, then let me just go a bit further with the work I started only at the beginning of last year, that these conditions, these dire conditions, inhumane conditions, the way we treat migrants, the way we treat people who are only applying legally by any laws for a protection in such a horrific, horrible, uh, devastating, dehumanizing way, and I can go on and on and on. Um, and it's just not Ireland, it's not Greece only, or it's not France only, it's across the board, it's the Europe. Uh, it's the European Union, uh, it's the borders um, Europe, um, and it's absolutely devastating uh, to see and to witness um, our policies of the closed borders and immigration um, in um, uh, in in, um, in today, um, but you see, when I say this, right, and I kind of concluded with the work I have done and the work other um, people who have experienced direct provisional survivors have done, but you know, this is just this is just it, really, and this is just one one example how to represent or maybe how to do a work or document um, what is direct provision, but really when we talk about representation or artistic representation of migration, we have this person, Richard Moss, who uh, represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale in 2014, um, going to Congo and documenting the conflict there, uh, extremely problematic, ethically wrong, um, with a neo-colonial, post-colonial, uh, exploit exploitative approach, you know, that we embraced. Not only we, not only that my country, Ireland, if I may say, as I'm naturalized Irish citizen and being here for 14, 15 years, that we have chosen this to represent our country at the Venice Biennale. And we can go a bit further uh, documenting child soldiers with this kind of sick, sickly pinkiness around no ethics, nothing going on there. And this is in the curriculum of the Irish, uh, Irish curriculum when we talk about art. And this is, if you can see above, this is IMA. This is Irish Museum of Modern Art that have put this on their social media only last week, reminding us how good this is work, how important this work is. For me, 
it's a disgrace. And we cannot blame Richard Moss for here, really. He only did his job, if you like. He's doing so well uh, at the moment as a neoliberal artist, if you like, you know. But we also have to look, why did we choose Richard Moss? Why do we think this is a good work? How can long can we actually portray people in remote villages in this particular case from Congo without any, without asking this child's parents, guardians, is this okay? Can we continue to parachute into communities, including Irish artists in direct provision center, extracting that nectar that is going to progress our career, that we can go on and, on and become successful artists and doesn't stop there. This is 2019, Baraka Nostra, my, I mean, this is the boat that carried 700 people, right? That have drowned in Mediterranean in Lampedusa. This is the boat that has been rescued as a part of art project the same boat that carried people who died was brought to Venice Biennale. The whole project cost over 2 million, I believe. And it was very disturbing to see the opening of the Venice Biennale, people drinking champagne, cheese, taking selfies in front of this boat. And isn't this beautiful photo? Look at the sky and the boat, such a lovely patina, amazing work. But what could have we do with 2 million? as somebody has written about that. How many hospitals can we, um, can we build? How many, how many support can we give to people trying to cross Mediterranean, for example? And it really is sickening and it's really not uh, going away with, pre-corona, uh, corona or post-corona, I think we are pretty much doomed. Uh, I think something radical has to happen. And, um, and I don't have much time. And uh, really, this is maybe the last example of not only, in my word, bad art, uh, but my view, bad art, but exploitative art. And Shireen Nashad, I love Shireen Nashad. Uh, she's, she's a phenomenal, um, artist, uh, and I've seen her work in uh, Palais de Tokyo in, in Paris only when I was there at the residency in, in Irish Cultural Center. And this is the work she has done with people from uh, Egypt um, at the time, you know, but if you, those photographs are massive. If you come even half a meter, you know, close to the photo, you will see that this person has tears in his eyes, right? So why is, why are the tears here so important? Why do we have to re-traumatize people to have this spectacle? I'm running out of time. Okay, yeah, Vukashin. Conclude on this slide, just a second, Stephen, okay. please. Just one, one minute is, you know, we, we cannot let go of it, right? Uh, very close to my heart, but I found uh, in, um, uh, in Paris uh, to uh, what we, uh, uh, what Massey really is and, uh, there is a hope, we, the, the struggle must continue. We, we, we really need to work uh, 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 together uh, strongly to abolish direct provision uh, and uh, deportations and for the ultimate and unconditional right to work.
Thank you, and I'm sorry I, 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 I spoke a bit. Thank you very much, Fukashin. Uh, just moving straight, straight to the next speaker, uh, who is uh, Dr. B.C. Arigon, uh, Senior Lecturer at Bowen University in Iwo, Nigeria. And he's speaking to us from Iwo, Nigeria tonight. Uh, before moving back to Nigeria, B.C. worked for three years as an adjunct lecturer in Trinity College, where he earned his PhD in drama in 2013. He's also a performer, playwright, director, and creative pr producer. He was a co-presenter on an RTE television program from 2000 to 2003. And in 2003, he founded Arambe Productions, Ireland's first African theater company, for which he produced many plays, including some of his own. He later worked with Roddy Doyle on a version of the Playboy of the Western World, which was staged at the Abbey Theater with the character of Christie, portrayed as a Nigerian immigrant. As I say, BC is speaking to us from his university in Nigeria. BC, the floor is yours. Can you hear me now? Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Steve Wilmer. Good evening, everybody. And I want to say a big thank you to Trinity and the Changing City Lecture Series organizers for remembering me, for inviting me to be a panelist on this uh, important discussion, which is migration and its artistic representation. Well, uh, you can see um, I started uh, Arambe Productions in 2003. And the reason why I started Arambe Production was because uh, from 1996, till about 2003 that I lived in Ireland, I used to participate in a mainstream theater, but every part that I played, I never liked them. So I thought if I wasn't happy about the way I was presented, perhaps I should create a medium to represent myself and to give my fellow migrants. I'm not particular about whether you're a refugee or whether you're an asylum seeker. As far as I'm concerned, all of us are asylum seekers in the world. You know what I mean? And the reason why I chose The Gods Are Not To Blame was because it was the first play that I saw when I was about nine, which made me to want to study theater arts. But not only that, some of you will know that The, God and the Gods Are Not To Blame is an adaptation of Oedipus the King, which is the story of the man who kills his father and marries his, his mother, simply because he's not sure where he belongs. So the issue of identity, the issue of home, the issue of belonging is one that has preoccupied uh, Arambe from, from the onset. Can I have the next uh, slide, please? Now, I haven't done the Gaza to Blame. The truth of the matter is at that point, I, I just was working with anybody who was interested in going on stage. And the truth of the matter is I feel, even if you don't want to become an actor, even if you're not a performer, if you could go on stage, and own your space, you might be able to walk confidently on the streets of Dublin. So when I realized that most of the people that worked with me on the Gazette of Blame didn't know what it entailed to make theater, I decided to go home and let us go to Africa to look for some stories that I can, I can turn to drama. For them, they will understand how a dramatist turns an idea to a stage play. Next, please. Now, this will be my highlight, the Kings of the Kilbourne High Road. 
It was a play that I saw in 2000 uh, at, the, uh, at the Andrews Lane Theater, which is now closed down. When I saw the play, of course, some of you here will know that the Kings of Cuban High Road is a powerful play written by, uh, by Jimmy Murphy. And he talks about five immigrants, five Irish immigrants in London. For me, people used to ask me, what are you doing in Ireland? I thought this play, more than any play, talks about, if you're asking me what am I doing here, have you asked your fellow Irish immigrants in London, why are they in London? I believe immigration is natural. People would gravitate towards where they think their life was better. I left England in 1993, and I left Nigeria for England in 1993, and then I came to Ireland in 1996. And I also believe in providence. I believe in fate. There's a proverb in my language which says, it is the head that knows where the legs are headed. So I never knew I would end up in Ireland and spend 25 years there, but I made it, I got there. And this play for me was one of the most important plays because I was able to use black people to uh, do Irish immigrants. And it was really uh, the highlight of the uh, 2006 Fringe Festival. Next, please. Now, as uh, Professor Wilmer has said, I think it was a confidence that I gained from the Kings of the Kilburn High Road that I was able to uh, uh, turn the idea of a Christy Mahon as a black person into a reality. I was lucky to work with uh, Mr. Dog, uh, Mr. Roddy Doyle, and we wrote it. And eventually my company, uh, Rambo Productions, uh, licensed it to the Abbey. Uh, I'm sure most of you will know how that ended up, but uh, that's another topic for another day. Next, please. Now, this is another uh, play that I found very interesting because it is a play that is set in Ghana, written by J.C. de Graft. The play is set in 1960s, when uh, Ghana just gained independence. And what I like about the play is uh, it's a play about a white woman being racially abused by a black man who had a bad experience when he was abroad. So I thought it was very important for me as a theater artist. I think you are more powerful if you refract rather than reflect. What I mean by that is when you show people their true colors, they will not, they will be too uncomfortable. But when you show them something that they cannot see clearly, maybe when they get home, they will see it clearly. Next, please. Now, this is, this is just a play that I did to celebrate Arambe's 2000, uh, uh, I think 10th anniversary uh, or uh, ninth anniversary. I did this at Trinity College. It was just a play of Wale Shunka that I adapted. It's a play that has nothing to do with immigration. And I wanted to tell my company that it is not all the time we do plays about black or white, whether you want to be misrepresented. So this is just a fun play that a lot of people had fun watching. Next, please. Now, this is another highlight of my uh, theater work in Ireland. I'm sure some of you would know Farah Solenor, who was murdered and uh, cut into pieces and, uh, and dumped in the canal in 2005. I, I just could not resist writing the play. It was like, there was nothing I could do about it. For me, I thought three people were involved in this killing and they were all blood related and this man was dead. So that means we could never hear what happened from his own perspective. And I thought as an artist, I'm not there to write a true life story. I'm not ready to write facts. So what I did was I tried to imagine what had happened that night, 24 hours, sorry, 12 hours before the man was killed. 
So the play turned out to be what uh, uh, Gohan called uh, Gohan. Gohan was the uh, director of Fringe Festival then. He says the tragic comedy, and I called it the Butcher Babes. What I tried to do is I tried to tell the story from the, uh, from the victim's perspective, uh, using my artistic license as a theater maker, and as a playwright. Next, please. Now, uh, the parties of Panel Street was perhaps the last, uh, one of the last shows I did in Ireland. I did that in 2013. And the Palace of Panel Street was actually an adaptation of my adaptation of the Kings of the Kilburn High Road. I think it was in 2010, I was invited to Nigeria to uh, contribute to Nigeria's 50th independence anniversary. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to show the Kings of the Kilburn High Road. But I thought it would be very hard for the audience to, under, to have an understanding of why black people are playing white people in England. When we have our black white people, when we have our black people there, there are lots of Nigerians in Ireland, uh, sorry, in England, as we have Irish people. So I turned the play to Home Sweet Home with black, um, with black actors in Nigeria. And the play is about black uh, Nigerians in a, in a restaurant in, in, in Kilburn High Road or in somewhere in uh, Elephant and Castle. But when I wanted to do this play with my people in Ireland, they said they cannot be, they cannot understand me putting the experience of British black, British Nigerians on the Irish stage. That I have to adapt my adaptation. And that's what turned to the parties of Panel Street. So the parties of Panel Street is an adaptation of my adaptation. And I'm trying to write a paper on that, which I call the contingencies of transnationalism, uh, adapting and adaptation. And um, I'm going to stop here because I want to give people the opportunity to, um, to, to, to ask questions. But just to conclude, I think it is important for the artists to respond to not only what's going on in the society, but also some other artistic representation of what's going on in the society. That was how Arambe was born. And I think I did my best until I had to leave Ireland in 2019 to return home because uh, there's a proverb that if it is difficult to continue on a path, you might as well retrace your steps. That's why I'm back in Nigeria right now. Thank you for listening to me. And I would like to take any questions that you may have. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Spisi. And our next panelist is Ululani Mfako. Uh, maybe you can pronounce your name because I can't get it right. Ululani, do you want to say how you pronounce your name? Mfakto. Okay. Uh, his, uh, he's a South African refugee who has spent several years in direct provision in Ireland. He's been a representative for MASI, the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, uh, on the government's expert group tasked with reforming direct provision. He grew up in uh, Cape Town and has a BA degree in politics and public administration from the University of the Western Cape and a master's degree from University College Dublin. Having experienced homophobia in South, South Africa, he applied for asylum in Ireland after completing his master's at UCD and was then moved into direct provision uh, in Dublin. Since then, he's been transferred to direct provision centers in County Clare and County Limerick. His application for asylum was rejected in July 2019, and I presume you're still waiting to hear the results of your appeal. So Bulani, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm still waiting for a, a high court decision. Um, 
we don't know when that uh, court decision will come out on my application. Uh, but the first thing I want to do is pay credit to um, the asylum seekers who have experienced direct provision or really put out their artwork um, in uh, not just showing their uh, miserable lives in the direct provision system, but also uh, uh, things that they value, things that they treasure the most uh, uh, precious things that matter to them. Um, uh, and uh, clear examples of that is something, uh, uh, something from there, which is the title of an exhibition by a number of asylum seekers who lived in direct provision, which is currently in the, on in the National Gallery uh, of Ireland, um, which was organized by a good comrade of mine, Evgeny uh, uh, Stone, um, and other asylum seekers who have spent time in, in the system of direct provision. It really brings, uh, 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 calls on them to, pro, to, to share uh, uh, with us and everybody else in Ireland, uh, uh, objects from a home, things that are very precious from them and what they mean to them. Uh, because quite often we get uh, told to go home. Um, uh, if you're a migrant in Ireland and you haven't been told to go home, um, you're very lucky. Uh, but we get, I get that quite a lot on Twitter. I get that a lot. Um, uh, 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 and other people, comrades of mine, get that a lot. Um, and there isn't an understanding and appreciation in quite a lot of the uh, racist rhetoric in Ireland, in, even in some politicians, um, that the fact that home for many of us is a site of trauma. Um, uh, so it's not a place that is very uh, uh, welcoming to be going to. So when you have an asylum seeker being told to go home, um, uh, you're really telling them they don't belong here, uh, but they've come here because they also didn't feel safe uh, where they thought they belonged, uh, which was their home country. And in that regard, uh, I, I'm highly appreciative of artwork that shows us how our lives uh, are shaped, that interrogates the issues that we face uh, as migrants and ethnic minorities in Ireland. Um, it's very difficult to find uh, a, 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 good artwork that depicts us in a positive light, but also uh, shares with us, the, shares the experience with a broader audience of how we experience life uh, in Ireland. If you turn on uh, Irish television, for instance, you're not gonna find a lot of programs that show uh, us how black people live, for instance, uh, that show how Eastern European uh, people live, how Latin American people live, but you've got a lot of diversity when you walk around Dublin today, but you don't see that on Irish uh, media or in the, uh, in the uh, television, and in film and television. Um, and so when we do have a show like Taken Down coming to the fore uh, to set a scene in a direct provision center, we are of course uh, inclined to be appreciative of that. But when it's set uh, again, you know, uh, it has a murder scene we don't want to associate crime and migrant because it always again goes back to those negative stereotypes that associate uh, uh, um, uh, people of migrant from migrant background with uh, criminality and that sort of thing. So it's great that people want to be able to, to want to produce and create uh, this show that uh, uh, represent uh, uh, the life experiences of migrants in Ireland, but there is a need to be. Uh, to, to demonstrate some care and sensitivity towards how uh, migrants uh, experience that life and how you portray that life, because you could be doing, uh, uh, you could be aiding in the racist rhetoric that already exists and the, the myths that come uh, uh, with uh, xenophobia in Ireland that we have seen. Um, and so we need to be to have that care. And in the, the way to, to ensure 
that such care is taken uh, 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 when uh, creating works like that. Uh, you need to ensure that migrants themselves are involved in the production of that work, uh, uh, because quite a lot of the artistic work, particularly on television, it's not owned uh, 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 or controlled by people of migrant backgrounds. One of the things that we come across now, um, I'm currently working on a pitch for a film with a great uh, Irish director that we pitched a, a short film. Um, and one of the things we come across is the question of casting. And a lot of Irish uh, direct, uh, uh, film people tend to look abroad when they're looking for black people uh, to be actors on screen. Um, they look up uh, to the UK and other countries, whereas there are black people in Ireland who would absolutely love the opportunity to, to act, to show their talent and explore their talent. Um, and so there, there needs to be some space um, uh, in Irish art for ethnic minorities and uh, black people to take ownership of the art and control the production and creation of the art, especially if it is about uh, black people. Um, there is no point in uh, going in uh, creating artworks about black people if you don't know how black people experience life, don't involve black people in that production uh, or in ownership of that art. And so we need to interrogate not only the art itself, but the process of creating that art, uh, because the process uh, can also be exclusionary. Um, when it comes to uh, uh, creating that work of art. I've, I'm fortunate enough that I've met a great number of artists in direct provision um, who pushed through the many uh, structural barriers that they encounter, such as not being allowed to work, for instance, uh, but still create their art. Uh, I mean, there's no uh, imprisoning an artist, even if you threw me up in jail and locked me up. If I had a pen or a stone, I could create uh, if I was a fine artist uh, into fine art, I would create artwork on the prison wall. Uh, uh, so there isn't an imprisoning uh, the mind of an artist. Um, that the, the idea that you can put a, people, a person in their prison, strip them of their right to work, their personal autonomy, their dignity, and that, it doesn't take away uh, the richness um, uh, in our humanity, uh, uh, the, the, the richness of the, uh, the, the, the talent that comes with that rich, richness. Uh, so we're fortunate enough to have had a great number of artists coming through to the forefront, direct provision photographers, people in fine art, uh, people who writers, and all kinds of artists who push uh, uh, the barriers that they encounter in Irish society. That, particularly uh, for people with precarious migrant uh, migration statuses um, in the country, to be creating that artwork. Um, it is great. It is great to see, but it, we also need to see much more support in terms targeted support that uh, 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 is tailored for uh, migrant people from migrant backgrounds, so that we see much more of that art uh, art artwork. Otherwise, it's not going to be any use if we continuously see the same old faces uh, when we talk about migrant artists uh, when there are so many um, who need the opportunity. I'll pause there. Um, Steve, you're on. Uh, thank you very much, um, uh So, uh, our next panelist, uh, can you hear me? Yeah? Yes. yes. Our next panelist is, is uh, Roja, uh, Dr. Roja Fazeli, who is Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern Studies in Trinity College and Global Affiliate in the School of Law at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Roger is the chairperson of the board of directors of the Immigrant Council of Ireland, uh, which has been putting on a very interesting uh, panel, a series of panels this week, and uh, is just finishing tonight, I think. Uh, and she's also served on the boards of Amnesty International and the Irish Refugee Council and has worked for uh, Scholars at Risk. She's published on the rights of women in Ireland and has been active in Trinity College achieving the status of a University of Sanctuary so the refugees can obtain scholarships to attend Trinity. This program is actually being launched tomorrow morning. Roja, you have the floor. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Steve. And I'd like to thank uh, all my colleagues who spoke previously um, and uh, for asking me to be a part of this. I'm going to try my best to keep to seven minutes so we have uh, some, some time, hopefully, for questions and answers. Um, so I'd like to uh, make um, kind of three main points. Uh, pointing to some of the work that I've been really marginally involved in. So University of Sanctuary was uh, mainly other colleagues who did the heavy liftings. Um, and speaking also about an organization that, that I have been heavily invested in. Um, and uh, I'm currently on the board of for, for their European um, kind of count, not counterpart, but um, section. And that's the scholars at risk. And, and very, very briefly on Immigrant Council of Ireland and the conference that uh, they have held in the past week. Um, so I thought to start my, my remarks first, uh, congratulating those behind the process of Trinity recently being awarded University of Sanctuary, uh, Sanctuary status. Um, I know Dr. Fintan Sheeran, Gillian Wiley, Dr. Brona, uh, Kathy Busick, Dr. Rachel Hoare, and Steve himself, and many more worked on making this a reality uh, for the last few years. Um, and I look forward to the launch, which is actually held tomorrow. So what does it mean for Trinity to be a University of Sanctuary? Um, well, it's a response and acknowledgement of the reality of human force displacement and also a commitment to address and take some responsibility for those refugee and mi migration related matters, uh, which the college can engage with productively. To some degree, Trinity has already been engaged on this issue. The Asylum Seekers uh, Seeker Access Provision Program was running even before the University of Sanctuary Scheme um, and offers four scholarships to asylum seekers annually. Uh, now, the University um, of Sanctuary Ireland, um, uh, with University of Sanctuary Ireland, we have an Irish white initiative to encourage, learn from, and celebrate the good practices of universities, colleges, and other education institutes in welcoming refugees, asylum seekers, and other migrants into their communities. Um, this is also about fostering a culture of welcome and inclusion for all those seeking sanctuary. Um, and we want to encourage this culture of welcome across the institutions of higher education uh, all over Ireland and make sure that it's integrated into um, specific programs and policies. Um, so um, one of the, um, I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit because I know uh, we, are, um, we, are, we are quite tight for, um, for, for time. Um, I, I do want to, uh, to mention a Scholars at Risk Network, uh, SAR uh, for short, uh, which I have been involved in since 2009 uh, in Trinity College Dublin. I've been the chair of the committee, even though we don't have an active committee this year, but I'm working on that. Uh, SAR is a, an international network of more than 500 education institutions in 39 countries working to protect threatened intellect, uh, intellectuals and to promote academic freedom um, and, and university values worldwide. 
So Scholars at Risk works first by protecting threatened intellectuals, academic researchers, rightists, also artists, and human rights defenders by advocating on their behalf, such as when they are wrongly imprisoned, and in the most extreme cases by arranging uh, positions of sanctuary at network member institution for scholars fleeing persecution and violence. So as I said, uh, Trinity, Ireland, Trinity College Dublin has been involved in SAR since 2009, and also Universities Ireland um, branch of Scholars at Risk was, uh, was launched on the same year. Um, and then in the past 11 years, um, Trinity has hosted six scholars, and these have included human rights defenders, lawyers, academics, and a journalist. And we have also uh, held a number of uh, events. For One of them, for example, was a conference on academic freedoms, which uh, was opened by uh, uh, the president, Michael D. Higgins. Um, and at the moment, um, I am uh, looking at, uh, at doing um, this SARS academic freedom monitoring project um, at, at the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Studies where, where I'm placed. Um, so um, there are challenges. We, we face challenges um, in Trinity in regards to hosting scholars. Um, that uh, this usually has to do with securing sufficient funding, both from Trinity administration and outside for funding sources, and then getting uh, the visa and immigration issues sorted as well. That's, that's always uh, has been uh, very difficult. Uh, but this year, I, I am happy to say that the Office of the Associate Vice Provost for Equality, Diversity and, and Inclusion has agreed to be a home uh, for Trinity's Scholars at Risk Committee. Um, so doing the structural, structural work to get these organizations up, running, and funded uh, is a sustainable way we can uh, be quite, in a, in a sustainable way, can be quite challenging. And one of the reasons, and this is one of the reasons that as a, the chair of Immigrant Council of Ireland, uh, I'm really delighted with the way the organization has grown and flourished. Uh, in the past few years. And really, the University of Sanctuary, Scholars at Risk, Immigrant Council of Ireland are all places where you see how important community cohesion and support is for uh, migrant communities. Um, so um, again, uh, for, for, the, for the sake of um, time, I'm very quickly, um, uh, I'll just read um, a few paragraphs and then um, finish. Um, I do want to highlight um, that this is a really, really difficult time. And I think all the three speakers previous to me um, have, have, have highlighted this as well. So according to a UNHCR report in 2020 only, an estimated 79.5 million people remained forcibly displaced due to persecution, conflict, violence, human rights violation, and even seriously disturbing public order. And, and COVID has, of course, only thrown these dynamic, dynamics into a starker uh, relief. Um, Ireland, I think, um, face, uh, faces some specific challenges. First and foremost are institutionalized structures. Again, um, we, we have noted this already, such as direct provision, which absolutely disfigure Ireland as a place of welcome. And Ireland's general uh, propensity towards openness also means a porousness to trends of xenophobia and nationalism that are increasingly pronounced in today's work. 
uh, world. Um, so uh, Steve has already mentioned the Immigrant Council of Ireland's uh, conference that was organized. Um, if you do get a chance, they, there are recordings of it. Um, do have a look. Um, Irish identity and integration um, was the was the forum, uh, but also uh, what was highlighted. Um, questions around diversity, in integration, Irish identity, uh, employment, black excellence, anti-racism, um, leadership amongst uh, migrants. Um, so um, um, it, it's you know all all quite positive, and and I would um, encourage you to to watch some of those back. Um, so um, on one hand, Ireland in two thousand and one is a much more diverse place than it was when I arrived in Ireland in 1992. And I've seen this increase in diversity largely welcomed as Ireland continues to be open to learning new things. And on the other hand, Ireland still has a long way to go to become a country that is truly inclusive of migrants um, and their families. Um, so I will leave it at this. Um, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Roja. And, uh... We only have a few minutes uh, for questions, but uh, we have several questions. Uh, Glenda Simino has asked two questions about direct provision, and uh, and uh, May Foreman has uh, an answered one of them, and then someone named AH has also uh, asked a question about um, uh, direct provision. So this is obviously something on people's mind. <laughs> I should point out that there's a white paper that's going to be published next week on direct provision. Uh, and hopefully the government will be coming up with some lasting solution, possibly to replace uh, direct provision with something much more equitable. Uh, so uh, Glenda has asked, how do people in direct provision manage to transition out of it into Irish society? And then uh, subsequently she asked, what percentage of people in direct provision actually get to integrate into ordinary society? What percentage are deported? Uh, Bululani, would you like to try to answer that? Yeah, in, in general, one in two, um, after the end of appeals, will get some sort of permission to stay in Ireland. Um, some may be given a, a deportation order, but Ireland rarely uh, actions uh, many of those deportation orders. In fact, one in every four, uh, uh, it would be around one in four, I would estimate, that are actually actioned. So they like to keep people in limbo. For many, many years, there are people who have been on deportations for more than five years. One good friend of ours uh, who recently got permission to remain had been fighting a deportation order since 2011, for instance. Um, so you can imagine the years and years that it would have taken to even grant him uh, permission to remain uh, at this stage. So when you do get a positive decision, whether it's refugee status, subsidiary protection or permission to remain, uh, you would be entitled to the same uh, support uh, that uh, if you get subsidiary protection and uh, refugees or refugee status, you're entitled to the same supports that an Irish person uh, would be entitled to when it comes to housing, uh, when it comes to social welfare, uh, when it comes to health care, uh, but also when it comes to uh, third level education. Um, there would be a, a residency requirement. So you must have been in the country for uh, three years, for instance, in order to qualify for SUSI grants to study. Uh, you find that people who, uh, who only arrived uh, a year or two uh, wouldn't meet that criteria, but it was also quite exclusionary when the government introduces a scheme 
uh, to give access to third-level education for asylum-seeking children. Uh, it required that they complete, I think, about five years of their uh, schooling in Ireland, and one of which must be third-level, uh, uh, sorry, the living set in Ireland. And quite a lot of children couldn't meet that criteria. In, in the first instance, uh, less than, uh, it was one person actually who got the scholarship, and in the following year, it was less than five people who got it. And so there would be supports to, uh, 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 to integrate into Irish society once you have a positive decision. But of course, we know that uh, housing in Ireland is a big challenge at the moment. Uh, uh, it's difficult for people to actually find uh, appropriate accommodation once they have permission to stay in Ireland while in their permission. Great. Uh, I want to uh, uh, also uh, echo what uh, Roger said about uh, the uh, series by the Immigrant Council. Uh, and perhaps, Roger, you could put onto the chat line uh, some information about where people can find that, and also about the, uh, uh, the University of Sanctuary, if uh, you know a, a, an email address that people could contact to find out more about it. Just go, go on to this one last question. Uh, it's from AH, who says, if people are working and earning a salary, can they leave accommodation provided by the state and rent their own accommodation? It's not clear whether she's talking about people in direct provision or, or not, but I, I presume she is. Uh, Bulalani, do you want to also answer that or Roger? Yeah, or, or... yeah uh, in general, people are free to, uh, in theory, people are free to leave direct provision. So if you have the means to do so, you are free to leave direct provision, but we have found that some people who uh, struggle to uh, to leave direct provision are people who are concerned about getting a negative uh, final decision. So for instance, people who have left a direct provision center, when they lose their job, um, it becomes very difficult for them to get any other uh, social supports. So we had people, for instance, who lost their jobs due to COVID-19, but struggled to find uh, 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 supports from the Irish state in terms of uh, uh, rental accommodation when they lost their jobs due to COVID-19. Because you would remember that asylum seekers were excluded uh, initially from the pandemic unemployment payment and were later on added, I think about August, uh, was that the, the, the pandemic unemployment was extended to uh, asylum seekers. And so we do find people do leave direct provision centers when they are working and can support themselves. Uh, but there is a concern that when they get a negative final decision, the work permit gets taken away and they aren't actually, uh, and they would still stay in the country and then they are left in, in, in a situation where they may be destitute. And so quite some people might not uh, 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 be inclined to move out of direct provision. Um, even if the conditions are, are horrendous, uh, if they know that it's going to be west down the road, if, uh, if they get a negative final decision and they are, lose their work permit. Uh, okay, I think we just have time for one last question from Anya Healy. Uh, she says, thank you for all sharing your experiences and insights. Some of the art that was shown, especially from the Venice Biennale, seems to me like an attempt to capitalize on the plight of refugees. I do not want to patronize migrant agency or talent as artists, but do you think migrant art has been exploited and used to validate those who feel guilty about migrant experiences and is demonstrating to the concept of misery porn? Uh, I don't know who would like to answer that one, Vukashin or, or, or uh, BC? Well, um... I, I would try. I was actually trying to respond to a question that was directed to me directly, but uh, if I, I think I read that question, so I'll try. The truth is, I feel that um, Ireland. I, I think when I was in Ireland, I said it repeatedly that Ireland is not harnessing 
the diversity of uh, artistic skills at, at its disposal. So as I speak, I can assure you that RTE has no, I may be wrong, RTE has no black presenter or black producer, but I know there are lots of people who are capable of doing that. I read something on the uh, in Irish Times, a series about immigrants who have um, who have who have uh, who, who have been living in Ireland, and there was a Nigerian who studied pro uh, production, who has worked extensively in, in Nigeria as a journalist, and trying to get into Irish Irish mainstream media has not been able to do so. So for me, if you are if you are going to represent the other, it's important for you to bring the other in as some kind of a consultant so that if you are if you're trying to represent my experience you know what my experience is you know from the horse's mouth before you can represent me because i would argue that someone like uh, uh, there was a play in uh i'm trying to remember uh, named dedra dreda monahan that wrote uh the play ratman's road a fantastic play at the pickup that talked about sexual abuse that talked about transgender She's not transgender, but she was able to write about transgender because she did an extensive research on it. So I'm trying to answer this question as well as the question I'm trying to type or answer. So there's nothing wrong with you representing the other, the other person's experience, but you must bring the other in to tell him or her, I want to represent your experience. How best can I do it? Thank you. Uh, Vukashin, do you want to comment on this question as well? <sighs> I only can say I totally agree. It's uh, 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 it's uh, nothing but uh, what the, the, the question was. Uh, it is a, a very uh, problematic uh, approach, uh, very exploitative, uh, very, you know, and if we look at uh, how does media operate on that, if we look at that, how much media uh, European media wanted to shake us all with that picture of the washed body of Alan Kurdi uh, that died uh, at the shores of Mediterranean, you know, and how long that picture stayed uh, in our minds, in our consciousness. Uh, yeah, maybe a couple of weeks, months, but what have we done subsequently to prevent that happening? How many Alan Kurdis have died since? I can only say there is a huge struggle ahead of us in terms of um, rethinking, dismantling the present narrative of portraying uh, particularly migration through visual arts discourse. Uh, it, it's, it's a long, long, long journey and uh, yeah, just uh, uh, it, 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 it must end uh, because it's uh, not only exploitative, it is wrong, it is not right, and it is, it is just a bit disgusting. Okay, good. Uh, okay, so uh, maybe just have one last question uh, for, uh, maybe I can ask Roger if you could try to address this, uh, which is uh, from somebody named uh, Bethany Luzny who says, how do you break down the wall between activists and researchers presenting perspectives on behalf of refugees, asylees, and allowing the refugees, asylees to express themselves uh, access to expression? Um, 
It's a really important uh, question, um, and um, um, you know, and and, and I think uh, part of what each presentation today showed was uh, how important it is to to hear the voices uh, of asylum seekers and refugees themselves um, and to empower and give agency rather than 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 just looking at them as as subjects um, and i think it's not just in in um, in the um, uh, kind of academic discipline uh, of migration and refugee studies that this is true. Um, it's, it's true of, of, of many of, uh, of uh, academic fields. Uh, for example, I work on gender um, and, and, you know, and it's really important that, that uh, we, we give voice um, to, uh, to, to our topics <laughs> rather than, than them just, rather than us being very um, distanced from it. So myself, I, I come from an activist background and I think it's, it's always really important for me to remain an academic activist. Uh, because otherwise I don't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm too far from the field. So there is no point in theorizing without actually knowing exactly what's going on in the field and, and hearing those voices. Um, and I think Vokasin's uh, presentation especially um, uh, was, was really important in, in showing that, in showing how, uh, you know, sometimes uh, subjects can, can become exactly that, just subjects and voiceless. Um, and agency is taken away when, when they try to capitalize on it rather than anything else. Um, so uh, there is like, you know, things, um, initiatives uh, like, uh, like University of Sanctuary, um, like um, 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 Scholars at Risk are there to try to give that space and voice uh, to asylum seekers, to, to uh, those coming from uh, migrant backgrounds or scholars who are at risk, who could be, you know, who could be asylum seekers and refugees as well. Great. Okay, I think we have to wrap up now. So I uh, want to thank uh, our, our, our uh, panelists, uh, Bulani, Bisi, Vukashin, and Roja for excellent pre presentations. I'm very sorry that we have so little time for these discussions because uh, it could go on for a long time. So I'm just going to hand back to Daniel Fass. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Steve. And, and I'd like to uh, finish with a round of thanks, of course, to the four panelists. Steve, to you for chairing uh, this excellent session tonight. Eve Patton, our director of the Trinity Long Room Hub for supporting the Identities and Transformation Research Team. Francesca, uh, or Rafa team in particular, but also uh, uh, her team for, for the logistical support uh, in filming, marketing uh, each of the 13 events we've had to date in uh, the Trinity and the Changing City uh, lecture series. And of course, all of you, uh, for coming along tonight, well over 100 that were live uh, with us tonight. And of course, you can still watch it back on, on Facebook uh, and uh, other means as well. And for asking those many, many uh, really fascinating questions. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everybody. And good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral Changes. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminist Here's to the next 10 years.